You've probably heard me talk about my dog, Jackson. He's my baby boy. And as he's gotten older, he's gotten really finicky about eating. He used to get so excited about food, he'd literally spin. Well, not anymore. In fact, I often have to spoon feed him to get him to eat. Well, no more. Not since we started feeding him fresh food made with whole ingredients, backed by veterinary science. It's Nom Nom. Now, I actually tried making food for him myself. I'd cook up big batches of chicken or beef with vegetables and rice or potatoes. But without knowing what I was doing, he wasn't getting the vitamins and minerals he needed and certainly not in the correct balance. That's all changed now with Nom Nom. Go to trynom.com, T-R-Y-N-O-M.com slash Nicole. They'll ask you some questions about your pup and tailor a specific amount of individually packaged Nom Nom meals and send them to you. By using my special URL, trynom.com slash Nicole, you'll get 50% off of your first order, plus free shipping, and it's a great way to help support this show too. Again, that's trynom.com slash Nicole. plus Nom Nom comes with a money-back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Well, I'm moving on out, out of Florida, headed for Arizona, where we'll stay. Moving on out, out of Florida, to a place where it's okay to say gay. AZ didn't vote for the fascists, but Florida certainly did. I know things there won't be perfect. I'm really going to miss my kid. While we're driving cross country, there still are shows to be done. So I'm pulling interviews you may not have heard, and I hope you listen to everyone. While we're moving on out, out of Florida, to Arizona, where it's hot as hell. I'll take the sauna over the steam room. To escape that Ron DeSantis fascist smell. Welcome to The Moving Shows. I'm Nicole Sandler, and we're finally doing it. Getting out of Florida, headed for Arizona. So I've carefully curated a few weeks' worth of shows to air here on the Progressive Voices Network and on the stations that carry the show. Many of them will also stream on YouTube, with a few exceptions. This group of shows features everything. There's politics as usual and some hard-hitting, important interviews. But you know me. There's also some comedy and some music and some important issues that aren't really political, but are important no less. They'll all be posted at NicoleSandler.com and they'll all go out as podcasts. So if you're not already a subscriber, I don't know what you're waiting for. I don't have a paywall, so everyone can listen anytime on demand. All I ask is that if you enjoy the show and have the means that you kick in some support. I could charge for the podcast, but I don't and I won't. But hopefully those of you who can kick in 5, 10, 25 a month will do so or will contribute whatever you can afford. And if you can't afford it, we'll just share the show. Turn some friends on who might appreciate what we do here and uh, let them know <laughs> that this show exists. You can click on the donate tab at NicoleSandler.com and please know that I truly appreciate your support. All right. To kick off this series of shows, we'll begin with a new interview that I've been looking forward to for a long time. Heather Cox Richardson is not quite a household name yet, but she should be. Her new book, Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America, will be officially released one week from tomorrow. That's Tuesday, September 26th. We taped this interview a week or so ago because I wanted to be sure to get it done without any interference from my move. Now, following the conversation with Heather, I'll reach back into the archives to July of 2014. I was at Netroots Nation in Detroit, and I had the opportunity to sit down one-on-one with the Reverend Dr. William Barber III. That's the man behind Moral Mondays and the, the Poor People's Campaign and so much more. These are two people for whom I have the utmost respect, and I'm happy to start this string of shows enabling me to move with these two interviews. All right, here we go. 
I've been looking forward to this interview for months. As soon as I heard that Heather Cox Richardson was writing a book, I immediately contacted the publisher with whom I have a relationship because I, I do talk with a lot of their authors. And I said, please, I, I, I mean, this one I really want to get in on. Heather Cox Richardson is a, you're a professor, a history professor at Boston College, yes. Uh, but so much more. You're an author, seven books, the new one, which comes out on September 26th called Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America. And I'm guessing that this is an outgrowth of your letters from an American, which is your nightly Substack newsletter that uh, I, I marvel at your your proficiency here. So it, is that right? Did the book come out of the, the newsletter? It did. Well, first of all, let me say that it's such a joy to be here, you know, following you all these years and also, you know, knowing that you and I have been through so many of the same things, it's really going to be fun to talk about this. So, yeah, the book was theoretically originally supposed to be based in the letters, and it is based in the letters in that it answers the the questions that people most often ask me. But it was a really interesting experience because it ended up being entirely its own thing that felt in a way as if it was not really part of me the way a book normally is. That is, I wrote a, I wrote it, I wrote a draft and then I did a bunch of other stuff. I got married and I was doing the letters and I was doing all kinds of stuff. So I left it for a number of months. And when I went back to it three or four months later, it was an entirely different book than I thought I had written. So I ended up rewriting about 80% of it and it took on a life of its own. So yes, it is the same person who wrote the letters in some way. It's a very personal vision of, of, you know, the, of me, but, um, but it's not the letters. It's, it's something a little bit different. Well, it's, I got to tell you, as I'm reading it and I'm embarrassed to say I'm only about halfway through, uh, because I, as I told you, we're in the midst of a move. So I'm packing the house and I'm doing my show and trying to do 20 things at once. And I, I'm surreptitiously like reading a chapter at a time when I can grab it. And it's hard to put down because you, first of all, we lived through much of what you're writing about. And I couldn't help but think as I'm knee deep into it, that and I mean this in in the in the kindest possible way that this is sort of that you, that I'm reading the successor to Howard Zinn and explaining our history because you do it in a in just a, a an easy to understand way, but no bullshit. You cut through it, and this is what happened, and this is where we are, and uh, and I mean that as a as a high compliment. So so much of it, as I said, we lived through. In fact, parts of it. You know, I'm going through like I was on Air America when uh, a lot of this happened. When you talked about, you know, Bush v. Gore, I happened to be in Kazakhstan where I adopted my daughter during the whole um, uh, the the Brooks Brothers riot. The only news coverage we had over there, I, I was there from November 19th to December 13th. The only news channel we had was Fox international. So I'm seeing everything that lens, but reading your historical take on it, it's just everything came into place. And then when you got closer to the last few years, last 10 years or so, um, the, the PTSD started coming back. It's like all this stuff you went through, but you so get it. And you've got this gift for explaining it. And I'm guessing that comes from being a teacher. Yes, that's exactly right. And you're one of the few people who have picked that up that so much of what I do is informed by being a teacher and by recognizing that there's, you know, there's so much to keep track of all the time. Nobody should be expected to do all of it. And it just to have somebody say, remember, this is where we are and this is who these characters are and this is what these laws mean and this is what all of it means for individuals going forward with their lives. I will say that the the book is divided into three parts. And the first part is how we got to this particular moment. The middle part that you're not the first person to say it is a traumatic experience. Mm. And I found it so rereading the book. The second part is how the, the rise of a certain kind of right-wing oligarchy between 1937 to 19, uh, 19 I'm sorry, uh, 1937 to 2016 gave us an authoritarian president who mm -hmm. took that oligarchy and turned it into authoritarianism. And when you strip out the noise of the Trump years, oh my God, 
it's like, you know, I lived that. I was day to day. I was writing about it every night. But when I stripped out, oh, he got fired and she said this and all that. I'm like, oh, my God, this is classic authoritarianism. But then crucially, the piece you haven't gotten to is how we get out. Yes. Like like why we don't all just throw up our hands and say we're done. And that part, I think, is the original contribution here. Well, and I did. I've been reading some of your back and forth, because in addition to your nightly letters from an American, and you co-host a podcast for Vox then and now and then, you also do these Facebook um, uh, talks where you, you really communicate with the viewers, the, li- the listeners, I come from radio, um, and, and somebody asked when you, you mentioned the book, said, well, does it have a happy ending? And and you say not what what was your answer? Not necessarily happy, but enlightening. Um, a call to action. It's how do you describe? It, well, so that's that's really interesting because one of the hard things about writing a book about the present, because I'm a historian, right? Where mm. the prophets of the past was that we don't know how it's going to come out. But that's sort of the whole point. It is either a pian to what was once a great American democracy, a great world experiment, and and how we lost it, or it is a celebration of its rebirth. And writing along that knife edge was actually really very difficult. But the, the message of the book is the message of so much of what I do, that democracy is not a spectator sport, and it is never finished. And everybody's got to put skin in the game unless you want it to be done to you rather than having some control over your life, which at the end of the day is really what democracy is about. It's about the human right to self-determination. Absolutely. You know, you said it. My friend my friend and colleague, Tom Hartman, famously signs off his show every day. This is not a spectator sport. Tag, you're it. And that's a point that you stress over and over again in your writings, in your talks, is that, look, we could hope that these court cases play out and Trump is held accountable for his crimes and the other people who were involved in trying to steal the election and the gaslighting and the insanity we've lived with for the last decade or more, and definitely more (laughs) as you get into. Um, But if we, you can't count on any of those things saving us. You can't count on the 14th Amendment keeping Trump off the ballot, even though it should. We all need to be active. We all need to participate. And I, I know we say it at every election, but I believe this is the most important election in our lifetimes because it's the, it's, it's the fate of our democracy. That's I think you're exactly right. And this is this is why I'm putting so much effort into, you know, celebrating American democracy and also urging people that it's really about them, that it's about what they want for their future. One of the things I see a lot and hear a lot is a number of people saying, what's going to happen? What are they going to do? And this, I think, is has been part of the vision of the United States as a as a place that peaked way in somewhere in the that vague past and that now we are all just supposed to be somehow inheriting that it's really taken away people's sense of their own power one of the things that really jumps out to me about the the curriculum in Florida, for example, Mm -hmm. the social studies curriculum was pushed there or the one in Texas that people have forgotten about that was before that is while we're focusing on its erasure of different uh, racial experiences of history in those states, what really is stripped out across the board, not simply in the American history sections, is the idea that people can have control of resistance, that people can have control of changing the direction of the country. And that to me strikes, uh, that really strikes me as part of a right-wing attempt to make people forget that it's actually about them at the end of the day. Uh, Definitely. And, you know, the other part, when you said when you stripped the Trump stuff out of it, what, what came to me was, again, I'm so grateful for the history that you lay out in the first section because you realize as we've known, Republicans play the long game. This, what Trump is putting into action has been planned out meticulously by the people that came before him, starting, well, you say it started uh, in the 30s. In fact, you even opened the book after you got through the foreword um, with, uh, 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 hold on, I'm going to pull up. The Today's crisis began in the 1930s when Republicans who detested the business regulation in President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal began to flirt with the idea 
of making a formal alliance with two wings of the Democratic Party to stand against it. One thing that we we allude to a lot, but a lot, of, but many people because of our problems in our education system don't understand is the basically the flipping of positions of the Democrats and the Republicans. I bristle when I hear Donald Trump and his ilk say we're the party of Lincoln. Well, not really, right? Yes, and and um, the 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 piece you just wrote was really interesting because that. The first chapter centers on something that happened in 1937 that basically everybody's forgotten about. And that is that a group of essentially racist Democrats from the South put together a a document with anti-New Deal Republicans to, uh, to, to make what they called the conservative manifesto. And the principles in that 1937 document, which, of course, gets leaked to the press and everything hits the fan and it doesn't end up going anywhere. um, The principles in that are are the ones that are motivating today's Republican Party. But the one thing I would say about the long game is that it's not just the Republicans. It's any time a minority wants to overturn the popular will. So we see saw a similar long game among the enslavers in the American South before the Civil War and, and really reaching forward from there. And we've seen this very long game piece by piece on the part of a minority who was trying to overturn the extraordinary po- extraordinarily popular liberal consensus that came out of the New Deal and then out of Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. And the that idea of, you know, we can't we can't get people to vote the way we want to because they like the way things are going. So we're going to have to game the system is not so much about political parties, although political parties embody it. It's about I'm a minority and a political minority and I want control and nobody likes what I'm thinking. So how can I game the system so I win in the end anyway? But the fun that I'm say fun, I'm a political historian. The interesting (laughs) thing about that is people don't see it happening for a long time. And then they do. Yeah. And once they do, the first of all, the fury that their system has been corrupted uh, explodes. But then the thing that has always fascinated me about the late 19th century and the, the 1940s and the 1950s and the 1960s is the extraordinary explosion of creativity and new ways of thinking at things and new inclusions and new ways of formulating things. And that's the piece of America right now that I feel like isn't getting anybody really in the media to sit up and say, hey, something really exciting is going on here. Because it is. Look around us. Right. But the media, I think, is so dogged in trying to appear to be fair that I think the people that are losing out are, are the public in their in their efforts to try to you know be fair to both sides. They are not they're leaving so much out of it. For instance, there's a new poll out, and I think polls right now are kind of crazy to look at because we're still well over. I mean, we're not even we haven't even started voting in the primaries yet. But uh, the fact that. 76% of the American people, according to this new Wall Street Journal poll, think Joe Biden is too old to run, but only 40% think that Donald Trump is. Well, maybe it's because they're we're being beaten over the head with these, excuse my language, bullshit stories of Joe Biden's mental acuity fading away. When I look at Donald Trump and I see a blathering fool who, uh, you know, I, I half-jokingly said, I put them up against one another in a in a match on mental acuity and physical ability. Any day of the week, Biden on his worst day would do better than Trump on his best. But there's this narrative out there that for some reason the media is not pushing back on. And so the American public regurgitates what it's hearing. Am I off base here? No, and I think it's it's really interesting and would love to hear what you have to say about it since, of course, you've worked in radio so long that what you're identifying is absolutely the case. Similarly, the fact that most Americans don't recognize that we're in the one of the best economic periods in American history. It is earth shattering. As a number of people said, if Republicans had this kind of a record with the extraordinary um, 
extraordinarily high employment rates, mm-hmm. the extraordinary growth rates, the investment in the economy, the fact that we have the we still have inflation, but it's the lowest of any advanced country. I mean, the numbers are truly, truly extraordinary. But people will tell you that the economy is not doing very well. Right. And the the answer to that, I think, speaks very deeply to a recognition that part of American democracy is popular opinion. And that, I think, is where a lot of people and I hate to pick on the media simply because, you know, there's so many cuts and all that 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 make their lives so difficult. They forget that they're being played. Yeah. And and one of the things that the Republican Party has done extraordinarily well in the period, really since the 1950s, and certainly that the uh, Southern slavers did before the Civil War, was to play the media and to make sure that the narrative that got out there was not what was really happening. And what's different now about the 19th century, for example, is that this is a form of warfare that other countries are deliberately engaging in to weaken the United States. And of course, we always point to Russia, which has certainly done that in the past since at least 2014 but uh, and continues to do so although the the demise of Prigozhin is going to be really interesting uh-huh. because of course he ran the internet uh, um, a research agency that was responsible for the 2016 interference in that election but other countries have done that as well with the idea that if you can just divide the United States if you can just pull down the United States that pulls down NATO okay so that's really going to hurt Europe and that pulls down any of the support systems that the United States is trying to reinforce in the Indo-Pacific okay that's going to help China and and it frustrates me that people don't understand that if you're going to change politics and you're going to change the world you must change the narrative and and i firmly believe that if you change the narrative so it's based in fact as opposed to this fantasy world that is really deliberately being pushed by bad actors that that people will make good decisions um but the idea that you actually have to base your your understanding of the world in facts as opposed to well lots of people feel like things you know i don't really care how people feel i care about what what the world actually looks like. And that seems to get a lot of short shrift these days. Definitely. But I think, you know, they've got a long head start on us. So a lot of the names that many people are just knowing for the first time, um, Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, Bill Barr, Steve Bannon. Well, funny, they all crop up in your book in the earlier chapters, starting with around the Nixon years. And the things that Nixon and that were put in place during the Nixon administration are just now coming to fruition. You know, um, I hear a lot about Donald Trump saying, well, you know, taking blame, taking responsibility for nothing. And that's a lesson he learned from Roy Cohn. But we're leaving out these other people. Roger Stone, who's been like, you know, a, a, a thing on his shoulder from since before he even decided to run, has been doing this. And part of it is vilify the media, um, you know, turn everything upside down. It is the art of gaslighting that they have perfected to where r- people like you and me who follow the news and know what's happening and um, be- rely on facts are going, wait a minute, it's the exact opposite. I, I coined this phrase years ago, opposite world. And that's where I feel like I'm living here. It, it, it's a little a little thing, it goes like this. Everything you thought you knew, you never knew at all. Sideways is straight ahead. Facts no longer matter. Reality is now fiction. There's a signpost up ahead. Your next stop, opposite world. It, nothing makes sense. And if you take, you know, it's like them saying, you know, they stole, it stopped the steal. They're still, no, that's what they were doing. Everything, it's the old I'm rubber, your glue argument. It's, it's, it's like that immature, but it, it's working for them. And they, now they have a whole media arm in Fox and Breitbart and the right wing media that didn't exist before they killed the fairness doctrine under Ronald Reagan. Well, and and remember, this is an actual uh, form of political engagement that has really been articulated in Russia as something called political technology, which is the creation of a false world that people identify with and vote based on, even though it is indeed a false reality. And there's a number of pieces to that. There's the flooding the zone with shit, as Steve Bannon always said, um, because then people, it's not necessarily that they believe it, but they start to say, oh, well, both sides do it. 
it. And you're seeing this all the time now with the idea that uh, President Joe Biden took bribes from China. There's literally no evidence, literally no evidence of that. But the idea is to try and say, so it's not a big deal when Trump pulled crap like that. So part of it is just the idea to make it look like everybody is doing the same stuff. Part of it is to make people say, well, I just don't know. I can't tell what's real anymore. And to retreat from that public sphere so that you lose the people who are actually discerning because they just throw up their hands. Um, But there's a number of pieces that, that we don't really talk about that are really coming to the fore here before 2024. And one of the pieces of political technology is to run fake candidates. Candidates who either claim to be Democrats or in America claim to be members of the opposition, but truly aren't. And on that, you have to look at uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is, of course, backed by Republican money and and really getting Republican traction, even though technically he's running as a Democrat, as a Kennedy, as a Democrat. That's the other thing is in political technology, you try and get people with the same last name so that people who aren't paying a lot of attention make bad decisions. But also this... um, no labels party, also oh. big Republican money. And that that's the sort of thing that worries me is that people don't understand that that's a political technique that is antithetical to the very concept of having a country based on objective reality, which was, of course, the whole point of the Declaration of Independence to say, you know, we don't actually have to have a country based on traditions so that we have kings. It doesn't have to be based on religion because you do that, there's always blood in the streets. It doesn't have to be based on on uh, ethnicities. What it can be based on is the idea of laws that are achieved by observing reality. And, and we're throwing that out the window. We are. And, it, it, you know, and again, it's because, you know, Donald Trump very famously um, said this. I think I only heard him say it once. I love the poorly educated. He loves the poorly educated. Well, I think that was their game plan. You talked about, you know, the the curriculum here in Florida. It's astounding. Um, and and Ted Kennedy actually he 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 predicted it. You have a quote in here when um, they had uh, nominated. I think it was Reagan nominated Robert Bork for the Supreme Court, and thankfully. The Senate said, no, that's that's a bridge too far, although they put Scalia in and they put Thomas. They put, but you, you wrote that Ted Kennedy warned that, quote, Robert Bork's America is a land in which women could be forced into back alley abortions. Blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters. Rogue police could break down citizens doors in midnight raids. School children could not be taught about evolution. Writers and artists could be censored at the whim of the government, and the doors of the federal courts would be shut on the fingers of millions of citizens for whom the judiciary is and is often the only protector of the individual rights that are at the heart of our democracy. Well, how many of those are happening right now? That was it's astonishing. Kennedy. It Isn't is it? astonishing. Because because when he said that, of course, everybody jumped all over him for saying that. And at the same time, the way most people remember, speaking of, of gaslighting, the, the way most people remember the fact that Bork was not confirmed to the United States Supreme Court is that the Democrats destroyed this this, you know, brilliant man. In fact, he was so extreme, it was Democrats and Republicans who said, hey, we're not interested. Right. And the next nominee got the, got the Democratic votes he needed as well to get onto the court. But that's not how people remember that moment. They have turned this extraordinary um this extraordinary moment into the Democrats sort of exaggerating and ruining this poor man's life when in fact, essentially. Kennedy was right. I mean, we're looking at exactly what Bork was trying to do by unwinding the idea of the federal government protecting the rights of political minorities, um, you know, and, and ethnic minorities, racial minorities and gender minorities in the states. Kennedy was exactly right about where it was going. And yes, indeed. I mean, we're looking at a place now where where Texas, for example, is uh, trying to prevent women from using uh, state highways to leave the state to get an abortion i mean can you imagine we're at a place where women might have trouble crossing state lines no and you and i are right around the same age and look as i was a teenager coming into my teens fine you know women were given the right to to have control over our bodies i never in a million years thought that 50 years down the line i'm going to be worried for my daughter 
who now loses those rights. She lives in Florida. She's 24 years old. My God, if something happened to her, I, I, that's we're leaving. I'm hoping she follows us to Arizona. I'm I'm freaked out by the, the prospect of her being here in Florida. But it's not just Florida. It's state after state after state where the Republicans have taken over the state legislatures, invoked gerrymandering to pick the votes. I mean, you point out that... Um, the Republicans, although they've, you know, they control most of the state legislatures, in many cases, they're not winning the popular vote, just like in the presidential elections. They've had a couple of uh, Republican presidents in, in in this century. None of them won the popular vote. Um, yes, so and, it's a minority rule. Yes, and you see this really dramatically right now in Wisconsin, where the, the Democrats win handily in the se- Senate and in the state Senate and in the the governor's chair, but the House is so gerrymandered in Wisconsin that uh, the Republicans have a supermajority um, simply because they have managed to game the system. The one thing I would say about, uh, I just want to add here about abortion rights is that women weren't given the right women have the right they 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 fought for the right and they won it through it wasn't given at all well i I was going to make it a little more expansive that is in uh in american democracy citizens have the right to uh to have control over their bodies so women have that right the supreme court recognized it in 1973 and now it no longer recognizes that right we still have that right Right. it's just not recognized by our government and that's the problem you know it's one thing if you know they give us a right to I, i don't know i could make something up here and it's not a fundamental uh uh, constitutional right that that people should have in a democracy, then, you know, they can give that, they can take it away because it shouldn't really matter. But a constitutional right is a fundamental right in the United States. And it was recognized and now it is not recognized. And that says a great deal about who is being currently recognized as equal, which theoretically we are guaranteed under our constitution theoretically but you have some on the supreme court saying well not necessarily um you know heather cox richardson it it is so great to be able to talk to you and my mind is spinning with a million questions and i'm looking at the clock because we only have a half hour you're just starting on the book tour and in fact we're recording this early because of my impending move and so but we have 30 minutes and and we just scratched the surface my i just need to say everybody needs to read this book it will open your eyes to things that you knew, but it, but, but you didn't. You knew, but nobody had explained it this way. It's like, of course, that makes sense. All the pieces come together. Um, it, we didn't. We didn't get to uh, Sarah Palin, who I think opened the door to Trump's brand of, um, of ugliness, and Trump giving the the people who were the racists and the bigots the permission to say the quiet part out loud, made it okay to say the things you know that that they're thinking, but they would never would say in mixed company, and also um, to point out, and you did this in, in a part that I just read that. The Republican political machine always had these wedge issues, abortion being one of them, where they use them to to motivate the base, to raise money, but they never really intended on following through. They didn't really plan to overturn Roe v. Wade. They never thought that would happen. They were just going to keep using that as a wedge issue to raise money, and, and they did it. So why is the Republican... I, I, we don't even have time for this. Why are they going along with this? Well, again, it's a very complicated and large question, but one of the real problems for the Republicans since 1986 was that their program was not popular. So they were going to have to pick up new constituencies. And Reagan had really courted the evangelical right in 1980. But after 1986, they really doubled down on evangelicals. And and that idea of picking up religious, the the religious right, you know, starts in 72, not in 73 after Roe versus Wade. It starts in 72 when Pat Buchanan suggests to Nixon he can pick up anti-abortion Democrats and bring them into the coalition. And that takes off in the 1980s. That tail is now wagging the dog because the evangelicals are by far the most loyal Republicans and they turn out to vote. So, um, so that I, you know, that, that pushing of Roe versus Wade is, I'm sorry, 
that pushing of overturning Roe versus Wade became a reality under Trump, who didn't understand that it was simply supposed to be a red flag. And now, of course, we're seeing the Republican Party completely melting down on that and a number of other fronts. And if we only have a half an hour to get into this, that's the piece that that really I think is worth emphasizing is that. You know, we focus on how we got to what looks like the potential to get rid of American democracy once and for all. But that is coming apart in our hands. And what comes out of that is going to be the next six years, basically six years. And what that comes out of that for the world is also going to be perhaps even a smaller period of time with uh, the destabilization of China, for example, and of uh, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what that's done to Russia and the you know the the rebuilding of alliances in the Indo-Pacific and and you know all these different things going on and the the message of the book was never intended to be one of oh my God we're all going to hell in a handbasket it was one to say we're we're in hell in a handbasket and now we're going hand over hand on our way out of hell mm-hmm. and what we make of that world is ours. And that's why it's called Democracy Awakening and as a sunrise on the cover, because, yeah, we could be going we, we could be going in a really bad direction or we could be going in a good one. And, and it's up to us. And that's the point. Everybody's got to be involved. The book, Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America by Heather Cox Richardson. It's in stores September 26th. I'm not sure when this is going to air, but you can pre-order it now. Um you can sit, you can read it in a weekend, but it's, I, I've been, been in fits and starts just because I'm doing 20 million things, but it is so good. It is so informative. I, every young person should read it because they're certainly not learning about our history accurately in schools. Um, I'm in Florida where they probably ban it because one person will say you should ban it, but I'm already taking up too much of our time. Heather, thank you so much. This has been uh, so great to meet you and talk to you, and I hope we can do it again. Um, I know you're embarking on the book tour. Best of luck with it. I don't think you need no luck. This is a great book. It's easy to read. It's informative, and it, it uh, as I said, I think I tweeted out, this should be required reading for every American, so... Um, Thank you and congratulations. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure and good luck with your move across a number of hot states. Yeah, yeah, we're going from hot to hotter. Uh, But again, they don't have the fascists in Arizona. Um, Thank you so much. And and I I hope we can do it again sometime in the future because I think you're going to be a voice that once you're, I know the book tour is kind of a pain in the ass, but once more people hear you, I, well, you know, you you exploded on the scene. You just started doing uh, what a little um, uh, Facebook thing that grew into it took off, where you're you're heralded as one of the leading independent journalists out there, historians, journalists. Yeah. Yeah, somebody called me the other day a celebrity historian, and I have to say, doesn't that really sound like a jumbo shrimp? <laughs> <laughs> Military intelligence kind of thing. <laughs> no, right. but in your case, it's true. Uh, Heather Cox Richardson, I think everybody's going to know your name soon, those who don't already. And I think among my listeners, they know who you are. Thank you again. This has been great. And uh, I wish you the best of luck. Super. Thank you so much. Well, that was a treat. Heather Cox Richardson. If you're not subscribing to her letters from an American, you should be. Just go to heathercoxrichardson.substack.com. There's a free subscription level. There's a paid level too, but um, just saying there's lots of options. And read the book. Oh my God, it's so good. All right. Well, it is Nicole. This is our first day of uh, best of shows. And we're doing this because I'm moving. So we're, we're headed to Arizona. So it'll be a couple of weeks. And what I've done is pull together some great interviews from the past, things that I think you will enjoy. So I hope you'll keep listening. This will not simply be a repeat of shows from the last few weeks. Oh, no. I have scraped the archives and uh, come up with some interviews that I'm proud to share with you. So we're going to continue this hour by going back with something from almost 10 years ago. It was July of 2014. At that time, I was going to Netroots Nation every summer. And in 2014, it was in the city of Detroit. And that's where I got to meet the Reverend Dr. William Barber. Well, I had met him before on the radio. We'd spoken before. After I saw him, I think it was the previous year, 
at another Networks Nation gathering, and he blew my mind. So when I heard he was going to be at this gathering, I did all the legwork to arrange uh, a time to get together and meet him and interview him in person. So I'm happy to share with you that moment from July 17th, 2014, the Reverend Dr. William Barber. I'm so honored to be standing here with you, Reverend Dr. William Barber. Uh, I had the opportunity to speak with you once before on the Randy Road Show mm -hmm. about a little over a year ago. Mm -hmm. And even then, I had seen a speech you gave at the, uh, the Campaign for America's Future when you mm -hmm. accepted the Paul Wellstone Citizenship mm -hmm. Award. And I was so blown away by your message because what you're saying is so very simple mm -hmm. and so logical mm -hmm. and so important mm -hmm. and I'm thrilled that you're here at Netroots Nation mm -hmm. because all these people needed to hear what you have to say. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I use a phrase, I call it opposite world, mm -hmm. where, you know, you talked about the religious right tonight mm -hmm. and how they claim to have the high moral ground and, and you really took it apart in a way that, again, is just makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. So, is that something that you came to that realization over time and then started incorporating it into your agenda? Mm -hmm. I mean, well, I grew up in a house where I didn't, I was taught that you can't separate being a Christian and being concerned about justice. And for me, opening in that house, my father, and a trained uh, theologian, um, you know, my doctor is in pastoral care and public policy. So I don't understand when. when, when as a Christian, I follow Christ. Christ's first sermon was deeply political. <laughs> it was about the poor, it was about the sick, it was about the blind, it was about the broken heart, and it was about anybody who's made to feel like a stranger. And he said, these are all the people I want. So I don't understand how we, cons we talk about morality in some strange conservative way that is not open to all people. But more importantly, as you said, it doesn't make common sense. Hurting people... Taking health care does not make common sense. Not only does it make moral sense, stepping on children, undermining public education, which is a driver of our economy and our future, doesn't make common sense. Trying to throw people away in a country that says everybody's provided equal protection under law doesn't make common sense, doesn't make constitutional sense, doesn't make historical sense, doesn't make moral sense, it doesn't make economic sense. It just doesn't make sense. And I think we as progressives have got to make that case. People are longing for us to recover a moral compass, and that's why I'm amazed. Uh, as I told you, I have a Republican mayor mm -hmm. named Adam O'Neill whose hospital just closed in Bellhaven, North Carolina, because of the denial of Medicaid expansion. 25,000 people no longer have access to critical care. He has joined us because he said, this ain't Republican or Democrat. He said to the governor, who's a Republican, this is just wrong. It doesn't make sense. Why would you hurt critical access hospital? Why would you cause people to literally die just because you don't like a president? It makes no sense. No, it makes no sense. Let me ask you something else. This you you cited, you know, the Statue of Liberty, right? Mm -hmm. And yes, on on the pedestal are inscribed the words, "Give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free." Just about every person, unless you're a Native American, every person in this country has ancestors who are immigrants. Mm -hmm. We see these people, and most of them, I I. I I believe, claim to be Christians, mm -hmm. standing out on the streets, blocking the road if a bus comes <laughs> by, with kids who came, whose parents did the most unselfish thing, sending their kids in hope that they'll have a better life, mm -hmm. and these people scream horrible things at these children. How do they reconcile that with you know, their, their claims of being good Christians? Well, I, I don't know how they reconcile. What I do know is we've spent... As I said, that white Southern strategy that began in the 60s was, and you got to understand this history of Reconstruction, how we go forward and we lurch backwards, right. and this this whole, uh, I think Chris Matthews called the kind of the constant civil war philosophically that we go through, that this this need where some people play on the fears of other people, um, they make people feel like they are other. It's called othering. I think Tim mm -hmm. Wise calls it othering right. people. Love so you're not American. You're mm -hmm. you're not. You're the cause. You're right. the blame. When in fact. It, um, it, it, it puts people in a strange uh, place mentally. Uh, I don't even know sometimes if they really realize because it's been, you know, there's been a job done on people. People have been bamboozled, if you will. Right. Um, 
we got to get those words off that pedestal back into the public discourse. We do. And it had, it's not all the extremist fault. Some of it is the fault of progressives, where we moved away from our moral arguments. We have not lifted them up as strong and as clear. You know, um, a recent article in the New York Times talked about how in 74, Charles Koch said, let's invest in think tanks and uh-huh. those things not, and to build a movement. Progressives are tended to build in Messiah candidates. Campaign is over. The movement ends. We've got to reverse that. Build from the bottom up. Cover our moral discourse, moral dialogue. Uh, whether it's, it's and it doesn't have to be from a Christian perspective or a Jewish perspective, because you might not even be a person of faith, but you can still believe in a moral universe. You still believe in the moral principles of our Constitution. And this is why you speak to me. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, you know, perfectly, because I'm not a person of faith. Mm-hmm. I come from a Jewish background, right. but I don't, I'm, I'm not a believer in mm-hmm. God. But I say this on my radio show all the time. I'm more of a Christian mm-hmm. than these people who, mm-hmm. you know, go out with their thumping their mm-hmm. Bibles mm-hmm. because I believe in taking care of those who need help. I sure. believe in helping my neighbor. I believe in doing unto others as I have them, you know, as I want them to do to me. And I don't understand. I, so I say I'm more Christian than they are. Mm-hmm. Um, when you would look at it that way, you talk about you may not, you know, believe in Christ um, as a theologian, but, but historically, historically, absolutely, right. his teachings were wonderful. Mm-hmm. And the people who are, you know, uh, claiming to be his biggest followers, they, I don't think they've ever mm-hmm. read any of his teachings. Well, well, some. And that's the challenge, you know. Um, and, and a lot of people, they're not, even the people are not so much at fault. They've been fed things. That's why when I go into communities and acknowledge of being a person of faith and lift up, I've seen people who said, one lady said to me, Mama, you know what, um, I've been exposed to the wrong concept of God. Or I've been, I, I, I'm not angry with God. I'm angry at the presentation of God as some kind of extremist bigot who wants to push down and beat up on people. Uh, there is a, I believe people, there is a place of redemption. Um, I've seen people come to their senses, particularly in this Marvel Monday movement. Um, some people have said, you know, I was following that, that extremist religious right stuff, and then I heard it. They, I mean, some of them haven't even been exposed right? to some of the texts that we talk about. So there is this deep place. I ultimately believe that um, people are still human beings. And if you can find a place to touch them at their core, at the center of who they are, uh, you'd be surprised the number of people that have come up and apologized. I was on the treadmill one morning, and this guy came up to me and said, Reverend Bob, I want to apologize. I said, for what? He says, well, I'm a Republican. I voted for this, and I voted because of things like prayer in the schools and whatnot, and I didn't listen to the rest of the message. And I don't agree with people cutting health care. I myself had a heart attack. I understand how important health care is. And, and what I did in that moment was didn't say, well, you dummy, you shouldn't have done it, but embraced it sure. and said, you know, come on, let's, we all can make some mistakes, but let's recover. And that's why we need an independent movement. That's not Democrat or Republican. Uh, that's not going to just stop or start based on the election. Because I will say this to your listeners. You know, we started the Ford Together Movement seven years ago. We had to challenge Democrats. We had to push Democrats to support health care. We had to support just Democrats to give more money to public schools. So there is a sense in which if we look at history, all of the greatest movements in this country have had some kind of moral independence. The abolition of slavery, mm-hmm. the women's suffrage movement, mm-hmm. um, the fight for labor unions right. grew out of a book called In His Steps um, by Washington Gladden. It was a book of the social gospel movement, the push for social security, the push against Plessy versus Ferguson, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the, the war on poverty all had deep moral underpinnings. And somewhere we've lost that. It's almost as though sometimes progressives, we got afraid of, and we gave it away. Right. And I'm saying we got to re-engage it. Well, we let them right. hijack the term morality. That's right. And, you know, what you're talking about is morality. We do mm-hmm. have a moral crisis. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think your message resonates so beautifully. I got one last question. I know I so appreciate you mm-hmm. doing this. That, that is, there is a lot, a lot of bad stuff coming from the church. I mean, from, you know, a, a lot of the, you know, the the whole thing about Hobby Lobby, that is a religious-based argument against other people's right to, you know, to, to live their lives. How, where does well, that come well, from? Well, I think that we have to find places. You know, when I was 
when we dealt with the marriage amendment in North Carolina, we were able to bring together preachers who say, listen, I don't agree with same-sex marriage as a matter of of my practice inside my particular ecclesiology. And they weren't all mean-spirited people. They just have some differences. But I do support equal protection under the law, and I do welcome all people. I had some of my liberal friends say, well, I want more than that from them. I said, wait a minute now. You know, we, the First Amendment has to be preserved as well as the 14th Amendment. Right. The First Amendment and the 14th Amendment have to be preserved, and it's a balance. You know, the, the freedom from and of religion of any kind, of any kind, anybody's moral perspective being forced on someone, but also the equal protection. And for the NAACP, that's what we said. We agree with the First Amendment and the and the right um, uh, the freedom of and from religion but we also ardently support equal protection under the law and it is in that place somebody said well they never said say do you support same-sex marriage well that's a trick question we didn't support the marriage between white and black people because marriage should be your decision what we support is the right <laughs> The exactly. equal protected right. right. That's the thing that we have to support. And I think that's where we have to be careful to be focused. Um, and we have to be careful not to allow uh, the extremists to play tricks on us to continue to divide us. When, For instance, when we argued in North Carolina against the marriage amendment, against it, one of the things we said was, how dare you come in our community and say, that you want us to be against people who happen to be LGBT or gay, homosexual. And you've been against us on voting rights, against us on health care, and against us on public education. That's a Trojan horse, you see. And we had to expose it as such. Um, but we also, in our movement, have had another genius to happen. Uh, Bishop Rawls, one of my good friends out of Charlotte, comes tomorrow Monday, who's, who's LGBT, and guess what? She doesn't talk about LGBT issues. See, the power of a fusion movement, she, she is an LGBT person and pastor, comes tomorrow Monday and talks about voting rights. Right. And then somebody who's straight gets up and talks about LGBT. LGBT. Right. See, that's the difference in a fusion mall movement as opposed to a transactional coalition where everybody's just there for their issue. And that's also a moral thing because we're concerned about our, our friends' rights. Right, right? exactly. I'm, I, I'm thrilled that my friend Joel could get could marry his husband mm -hmm. um you know and he's thrilled that I, that I as a single mother can raise my daughter mm -hmm. and you know want her to have a quality education mm -hmm. and you know and that's how it should be mm -hmm. we're because we're all working together yeah. at this and that's the one thing that you said yeah. at the aft convention yeah. and you said it again yeah. here the most important thing we can do right now is build this movement right. and organize and get together and not mm -hmm. stop because right. they're better organized and don't implode on each other right. you know sometimes because like i said i had people that wanted to when, when I brought pastors together who had different views in terms of what they would do inside of their church, but they all agreed on the equal protection. And some people said, well, that's not enough. And I'm saying, but wait that's a minute. That's a great starting that's a point. Big, Isn't that's that? major. And so we got this balancing act, First Amendment, 14th Amendment. It's always going to be a balancing act. I protect free speech. Some speech that I vehemently disagree with, but I protect the right for people to use it. And so... At the end of the day, you know, as I said from the debate, we, we've got to recover this moral compass. Establishment justice, uh, one nation, um, you know, uh, care for the least of these. And, and sadly, on both sides of the aisle, too much of that language has been given away. I mean... We're just getting around in some ways to de some Democrats starting to use the word poor again. Yeah. We, oh, we had almost oh, stopped using the no, word poor. We thought we had. That was the middle class. Right. We created. The poor were invisible. Right. We created what Otto Swammer calls attention uh, violence against the poor. Mm -hmm. And we right. say people, this is how we describe the poor. People tr working to get in the middle class. No, some people are just poor. Right. And they are poor because of disenfranchisement and systemic uh, uh, denial of opportunity. And you ha if you can't say the word, and if you can't raise it as a moral uh, category, and if you can't lift up a vision to deal with poverty and call it what it is, you'll never get to any kind of implementation. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
Well, I, I hope everybody gets to hear what you have to say because you are touching something in a lot of people, a huge cross-section of people, and it's magical. And I, 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 hope, I, I hope I'm not overstepping anything if I say this, but I said, I said after I saw you mm-hmm. in Los Angeles at AFT, and I'll say it again now, you have this something. You have what Dr. King had. You have the power you're, you are touching people, and I said you you are the closest thing we have to Dr. King in the 21st century, and everybody needs to hear your words. I, I thank you. I thank you so much. Right? Well, one of the things I think that, you know, the movement helps to make, and as I said, oftentimes in the, in the deepest crisis is where you get your clearest vision. Um, and so if anything, um, the people... You know, one thing I said about Marl Monday movie, we never planned. This, I'm going to give your audience a secret. Okay. We had no plan for 64 weeks. <laughs> All we had was when they did everything they did in the first 50 days, cut Medicaid, denied 900,000 people earned income tax credit for 23 families to get tax cut, cut another billion dollars from public education. Uh, I go on down the line. And then on, on Monday, Thursday of Easter week, of Holy Week, they rolled out this voter suppression bill. Now, they held it until after Shelby, but they rolled it out in Easter. And then after Shelby, one of the legislators said, now that the headache has been removed, called my Section 5. But we decided during Easter week that if they were going to engage in crucifixion, that every crucifixion needed a witness. Every crucifixion needs somebody to stand there and say, that's wrong. And so we decided, 17 of us on April 29th, to go in standing on this foundation of seven years of organizing. We didn't have a plan for the next Monday. What happened was when we went in, we found out that the people were ahead of us. They were waiting for an opportunity to say you can do something besides just wait to the next election. You can raise moral dissent. You can engage in civil disobedience. You can, you, can, you can speak out of your consciousness. And we didn't call anybody to come back the next Monday. They came. Wow. And then wow. they came. And what happened was we had to catch up with the movement. Something happened that's bigger than any individual, and yet we're individuals involved in it. But the, but the movement grabbed us. And so we found ourselves three weeks in saying, you know, what are we going to do? <laughs> And now, 64 weeks later, it's still moving yeah. because the people were already ready. What we needed was the spark. Yeah. So the advice would be to, to people around the country, don't wait for a leader to step forward. This has to come from the bottom up. It's you just come. do it. Just you gotta do, move. do it. You got to move. You got to move. You're Thank awesome. you so much. Thank, Thank you, you so, much. Thank so you. very Thank much. You. Can Thank I have a hug? Oh, yeah. Thank you. That was special. The Reverend Dr. William Barber. You can learn more about him at breachrepairers.org. And while you're there, join in his moral movement. So we've got a few minutes left. So I thought on the days when I do have a little more time to fill at the end of the show, I'd share some of my favorite parody songs from regular people around the world who we discovered mostly during the pandemic. Now, I was actually a little late to the Marsh family, but once I found them, I was smitten. We've watched these kids grow up since they posted their first pandemic-related song, One Day More. It went viral and the rest is history. You can find all their videos on their YouTube channel at Marsh Family Songs or their website, which is MarshFamilySongs.com. I'll be back tomorrow with another Moving Out Best Of show. We'll relive a few slices of history. All right, so... Come back tomorrow. I'm Nicole Sandler. Thank you for listening. And again, I'll leave you with the Marsh family and the song that started it all for them, One Day More. Oh, <laughs> One day more.
direction Let's just let them run amok We're not ready for these schoolboys Cause they just don't One give day. a fuck What's that on Tomorrow is another day, tomorrow